You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. A couple of things before we jump into Genesis 12 to 22. Back in December before Christmas, I was at Costco on a Saturday morning and they had those big space heaters and I had my, I was going to buy three of them. You know, the big, like huge space heaters. And I was going to buy three of them and expense it on Missio and you guys were going to pay for those and we're going to put one in each of these areas. And I decided, I texted Charlie and Sarah and I didn't hear back right away and I was like, I'll go back later this afternoon. I went back later this afternoon and guess what was sold out? and never came back in stock. How much do you all wish, especially all in the shade, that I had pulled the trigger on those suckers back in December? Sorry about that. Uh, Second thing, uh, just to get out of the way, is that there is an owl in the tree up here, so you guys can all be distracted from my sermon as my children are right now. There's an owl just staring at us, which, ready? Yep, there he is, ready? Pastoral switch, as you're looking for the owl, segue, as you're looking for the owl, owls, are all about wisdom, right? They're the wise owls. Let me give you four pieces of marital wisdom that I've acquired over the last four, uh, 20 years. Four pieces over the last 20 years. Two of them, I think, are debatable, and two are undebatably good. The two debatable ones, number one, uh, I picked up from my father-in-law, from Leslie's dad, when he just told me one time, he said, Chris, the biggest thing you need to know about marriage is happy wife, happy life. Charlie said it was going to get windy there. Okay. So happy wife, happy life. So you can debate in your own head. Is that, is that helpful or not? Is that uh, pedantic? I don't know. Uh, but so that was one thing. So debate about that. Second thing, debatable piece of wisdom is uh, never go to bed angry. Never go to bed angry. And that was a great piece of wisdom given by someone who had never been married. So here's what I want you to do for passing the piece. I'm just stirring it up. So you can either look for the owl and stare at the owl, or you can turn to someone next to you and just talk about those two pieces of debatable wisdom, happy wife, happy life, and uh, uh, never go to bed angry. Are, do you agree both of them are good advice? Neither of them are good advice? Maybe good advice? What, what do you think? Okay, so ready, set, go. You have two minutes to talk about that with people around you. Go. All right, two pieces of undebatable, helpful wisdom. Uh oh. <laughs> Chris was about to get Chris. Chris was getting in trouble right there. I had to say it too. He was digging himself deeper and deeper. Uh, well, I'm just going to throw everybody on the bus. Mark Sellner asked me to make this sermon short because he's cold. So I'm going to try to go. Uh, 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 so real quick, uh, good wisdom from the owl of marriage over 20 years. Number one is. Uh, Leslie and I, we were doing a Bible study on marriage. Before we got married, we walked out of the Bible study. We got in the car. We looked at each other. I think she probably said to me, she said, divorce is not an option, right? It's not a joke. <laughs> I'm just kidding. She's like, divorce is not an option, right? I was like, yes, divorce is not an option. I'm like, all right. And we've lived with that for the last going on 20 years in a couple of weeks. So I think for those of you who are, who are young, who are newly married, to start that on the foundation of your marriage, to say divorce is not an option. And it enables you to fight. It enables you to walk, to live over the course of the years in a different way if you know starting out that divorce is not an option. Second thing, wisdom for marriage is, 
and just for life, I would say this, that never use superlatives, always and never. Never say always or not. You always do this. You never do this. It never works well. So never use superlatives. We're jumping back into a series that we are going through this entire year. We're doing this with the other two Missio congregations as well, where we're walking through the narrative of the Bible. In January, we spent a couple weeks, uh, Charlie spent a couple weeks on creation, Genesis 1 and 2, that God creates the world good and right and beautiful, gives the people a job to do. Then uh, we got rained out on the last Sunday in uh, January, I think, and I did a video sermon on the rebellion. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. Sin has entered the world, and it goes from bad to worse. And so we come to this place now, the third act of the story. We come to Genesis chapter 12 and on, and there's a turn that happens there. And it's all around an individual named Abram, whose name gets turned, changed to Abraham. And this guy, Abraham, and his wife, Sarah, there's this promise that gets made in these chapters. And what you have to understand is that this section of the Bible that we're going to be talking about today, it is all about superlatives. Never use superlatives in marriage. You always do this. You never do this. You're the most this. But what I want you to see and what I want to draw out is just three superlatives, three hyperboles uh, that Genesis 12 to 22 give us, and they would have given those first Israelites who had escaped slavery by the mighty hand of God from Egypt, and they give something very helpful for us as we walk through our lives today. Number one, number one, the most important question in the world. We see in Genesis 12 to 22 the question and the answer to the most important question in the world. Now you say, what's the most important question in the world? See, unanswered questions are painful. And some, we, some of you are walking right now, there's a question that you have that you're asking God, that you're asking, that you're waiting on, and you're saying like, it's this question and it's unanswered and it's painful, and how do I continue walking in this? But there's this ultimate question, the most important question ever asked in the entire world is answered in Genesis 22, or Genesis 12 to 22. And here's the question. It comes up because as we go from Genesis 3 to 11, here's what happens. In Genesis 3, 6, she took some of it and ate it, and he ate it. Sin enters the world. They rebel against the living God, their Lord, and they believe the lie. The next chapter, in chapter 4-8, it says this, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. It goes from rebelling against God to killing your brother, fratricide. It's a fun word. At the end of chapter 4, Lamech married two women. Polygamy. Keeps getting worse. Genesis 6-5, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was evil all the time. This is right before the flood and then he floods the earth, destroying everything. Do you see where this is going? God created the world to be good and beautiful and the people to take care of it and look what they're doing. Get out of your perspective. Forget about, stop looking from your own perspective. For a second, put yourself in God's perspective. What's happening here? 
I created this world, I gave it to you guys to be good, to care for it, and you're messing it up and killing each other. Until finally, in Genesis 11:8, so the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth. Why? Because they were trying to make a tower to reach the heavens to make a name for themselves instead of doing what God had asked them to do. Time and time again, in Genesis 3, listen to this. Time, why, why I'm reading these scriptures, from Genesis 3 through 11, what you see, look from God's perspective, the people continue to rebel against God in his creation project for his world to be filled with his glory keeps getting undermined by them. Every time God rescues them and comes to them and, and brings them back, they keep messing it up again. And so the question that we're left with at the end of chapter 11 is this. Listen to Chris Wright. The whole Bible could be portrayed as a very long answer to a very simple question. What can God do about the sin and rebellion of the human race? What can God do about the sin and rebellion of the human race? Genesis 12 through Revelation 22. Starting here in Genesis 12 through the end of the Bible is God's answer to the question posed by the bleak narratives of Genesis 3 through 11. What you're going to see as we look at Genesis 12 to 22, and I encourage you to read through it this week, what you're going to see is God's answer to the most important question in the world. So what question are you sitting here with? What question are you wrestling with that's still unanswered? It fits in and it's framed by the fact that the biggest, the most important question has already been answered. Does that make sense? Whatever uncertainty you have, whatever questions you're wrestling in, they only are uncertain in as much, but they still fit into the bigger answer to the biggest question that already is. That God is in control and he is rescuing and figuring out the mess that humans have gotten this world into. Whatever the bleak narrative, painfully unanswered question that is echoing in your soul, it is situated in this bigger story, and it is a part of this bigger question that is answered in Genesis 12 to 22. Number two, the most powerful force in the world. The most powerful force in the world. Do you ever feel powerless to change the sinful behavior, the sinful patterns that you find yourself in? The most powerful force in the word in the world is the word of God when God speaks. In Genesis 1-2, in the beginning, God creates everything. And the earth is formless and void. So he creates the world, but it's formless and void. That's a problem. And the next words, in God said. So there's a problem that the earth is formless and void, and God speaks, and something happens. Throughout all this mess of Genesis 3 through 11, uh, Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit, and God comes to them and speaks and says, Adam, where are you? Uh, Cain kills his brother, and he says, uh, where's your brother? He comes to him, and he speaks. God speaks over and over. He comes to Noah, and he speaks. At the Tower of Babel, uh, they're building this tower to themselves. Listen to this. They're building a tower to make a name for themselves. God doesn't speak there. He scatters them and messes with their language. But he says nothing at the end of chapter 11. 
But then Genesis 12 starts. Do you know how Genesis 12 starts? And God said, and Yahweh said, and the Lord said. What God says to Abram, when he says to him, I am going to bless you, and I'm going to, I'm going to be a, make you a blessing to all the nations of the earth. What he says there, he comes and he speaks. He spoke at creation, it was formless and void. He spoke and everything existed. He speaks now in the midst of this huge problem coming off of Genesis 11 that the human race is against God. And God comes and speaks to Abram and says, this is how I'm going to do something. I am going to rescue the world through you. You're going to be blessed to be a blessing. Again, Chris Wright says this, the greatest human achievements cannot solve the deepest human problems. God's mission of blessing the nations is a radical new start. It requires a break, a radical departure from the story so far, not merely an evolutionary development from it. What needs to happen to break the sinful pattern of Genesis 3 through 11 is something radically new, a radical new start. God has to speak and do something new. In order to break the sinful patterns in your own life, the things that you're struggling with, the selfishness, the, the fruitless ambition, the sexual sin, the addiction, whatever that is, it needs to not just be you trying harder to try to get out of that. It needs to be the Lord speaking something new and doing something new in your life and in our lives. A radical departure. The sin that you're trapped by, you can't reason your way out of it. You can't will yourself away from it. You can't evolve into a better version of you. And you can't feel yourself into being okay. You need nothing less and nothing more than the powerful saving force of the Creator and Redeemer, God, to give you a radical new start. And He can. That is what He does. I want to invite you, uh, I have one more point. After that last point, we're going to go to the table and we're going to receive communion. And there's going to be people last week, uh, the Hamiltons and the, the Bacons were in the back to pray for people. I just want to encourage you, if you need a radical new start, like you sense that Genesis 3 through 11, it's broken, I can't get out of this. And you need that in the same way where in Genesis 12, 1, and Yahweh said, God said something new. If you sense that helplessness and hopelessness, I encourage you, come to the back and let them pray for you. Just say, I just need prayer. You can tell them what you need prayer for, what your deal is, or you can just say, can you just pray for me? And let them just put their hand on your shoulder and pray for you. Pray God's word over you and let that be a radical new start. And then finally, number three. In Genesis 12 to 22, as you read it this year, you're going to, uh, this week, you're going to find the most sure promise in the world. The most sure promise in the world. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, God says, Go from your own land, Abram, to the land I'm going to show you, and I'm going to bless you, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In Genesis 15, the covenant comes back again. It's going to be 12, 15, 17, and 22. He keeps coming back and giving him this covenant. He could have just given him 12, 1 to 3. There's your covenant. There's your blessing. There's the promise I'm making. But God wants to make sure he knows that promise is true and he wants us to see this. Genesis 15, he's going to promise him again to give him an heir. There's this vision. Abraham falls asleep. There's this vision of a, 
a smoking torch and flaming fire pot, and a covenant is reaffirmed through there. In Genesis 17, he makes the circumcision as the mark of the covenant. In Genesis 22, he finally has a son, Isaac, and he's told to sacrifice. I mean, you have that story of even being willing to sacrifice. And at the end of 22 in verse 16, he says this. God says to Abraham, listen to this. This is the most sure promise in the whole world ever. God says to him, the covenant that I made with you back in Genesis 12, that I recommitted to in 15, that in 19, I I promised again and give you the hair. In 22, 16, he says, I swear by myself. God swears by himself. What more could he swear by? What more could he put down on the table than to say, I swear by myself that I am going to fulfill my promise, that I am going to fix this world, that I am going to do what I say. William Dumbrell says this, within the Abrahamic narratives is a constant tension between the promises of God and the lack of an heir. There are eight crises in 1127-2511 brought on by human initiative. But through each of these eight crises, God is faithful. You see, for him, for God, divorce is not an option. He shows that his covenant promise is sure no matter what. And that's why as we walk with God, we're able to walk with a surety, with a sureness, with an assurance, knowing that divorce is not an option. He will stay sure to his promises. And that enables us to go through our lives with a confidence. The freed Israelites, we read Exodus first because we needed to see that those Israelites had been saved from slavery and they would be reading these chapters of Genesis 12 to 22. And as they did that, standing in the wilderness, now for 40 years, they needed to know, is God still here? Did we make a mistake? Should we go back into slavery? Did we make a mistake in trusting this God? And they would have read this narrative of 12 to 22 and thought, God is sure. His promises are sure. And what about you as you stand in whatever wilderness that you find yourself in at the, law, at the end and the continuation of this crazy, ridiculous year that was 2020 that just seems to continue on? As you continue to stand here in the wilderness and you ask the question, is God still here? Did I make a mistake? Should I go back to my old life and live like everyone else? What should I do? To you, let Moses say, his promise is sure. Hold on. Here's a story. The the freed slaves got the story of Genesis. And we get the story of Genesis, but not just that. We get the story of Jesus. And it's to that that we're invited into. We can know that the most important question has been answered by Jesus. We can know, we can know that the most sure promise in the world is ours in Christ. And so I want to invite you to the table. I want to invite you to come to receive communion from the table behind me. 
and we have a, a liturgy. We're going to say some things together as we get ready to do this, so I invite you to, to pull out that handout if you have it. If you can respond with the, the parts and bold together as a church family. Together, we're going to come to this table. You'll come individually, but we're all coming to this table together. Uh, Micah and Deb are going to be serving. And as they do that, we say these things together. Let us come to this table. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Pray with me. Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. And when we had sinned against you and become subject to evil and death, you in your mercy sent your only Son, Jesus Christ, into the world for our salvation. By the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, he became flesh and dwelt among us. In obedience to your will, he stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself once for all, that by his suffering and death we might be saved. By his resurrection, he broke the bonds of death, trampling hell and Satan under his feet. As our great high priest, he ascended to your right hand in glory that we might come with confidence before the throne of grace. On the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, Jesus took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink this, all of you. For this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Please stand and pray with me this prayer of humble access. This prayer we'll pray together is called the prayer of humble access. We humbly are given access to this table, the one hosted by Christ. Pray with me. We do not presume to come to this table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose character is always to have mercy. Grant us therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body, and our souls washed through his most precious blood, and that we may evermore dwell in him, and he in us. Amen. The gifts of God for the people of God come to the table. <laughs> 